All right. So one more. One more. I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you one more time. And I want to, I have to, I must, I desire to start off with a word of expression of gratitude and thanksgiving to, to God chiefly and first and foremost, and then to you, um, the church that has loved me so well throughout the years. Many of you um, I have known and spent time with for the better part of two or three decades. Others of you I've had the privilege of knowing for the last five or ten years. And for some of you, it's been a joy to get to know you in the last two or three years, the last year that you have joined the church or become members here. But for for all of you, um, how thankful I am for God's kindness to us. Um, I have, this is the church that I grew up in. Some of you may not know that. This is the church that, uh, that uh, I have been at for 36 years. Just gave away my age. <laughs> it is a church that uh, has impacted certainly my life the most. The church that I was saved in, was baptized in 1998. I was baptized with uh, Joe Wilson, Pastor Joe Wilson's daughter, Deborah. And many of you know her, and she's a very precious, precious sister in Christ with Down syndrome. So many, so many memories of what God has done uh, in our church and, and through it. And my gratitude and gratefulness is profound this morning. And it's with such mixed emotions that I preach to you the la- for the last time, at least as a pastor. I hope I'll be able to come back and visit and preach but we have, we have had some really, really riveting times. God has been good to us. Um, he has blessed us. He has seen us through hard days, the death of children, seen us through the death of loved ones and spouses. He's seen us through some really, really difficult trials. And he's also brought us to the mountain peaks where we've worshiped him. We've celebrated together. We have sung. We have We've eaten and uh, we've feasted together, and, uh, and God has just been so faithful all the way through. And that's the thing that's consistent, is no matter what's happening in our life, the ups and downs of church and ministry is that there's a rock that has been all the way consistent all the way through this, and it's God, and it's, and it's who we put our profound trust in again this morning. And so I just wanted to preach this last message in this farewell series uh, entitled Keep Believing on the Gospel because I cannot think of anything more important than that we stay anchored and rooted in the central message that has brought us here to this place. And so that is what we're going to do this morning and that is where we're going to go. And the way you all have sent us out in love the way you all have blessed us is just, is just fantastic. We love you, and we are thankful to you, and it's something that we, we will certainly never forget. So, But there's work to be done today. There's a sermon to be preached. There's more truth to be heralded, and so that's what we're going to do. Now, let me just share one word about these books, all right? Uh, you all were kind enough and generous enough to, as a parting gift, to to uh, gift me the collected writings of John Piper. So that means I have no need for my John Piper books. All right, so there's a lot. There's two shelves here. What I want to do is just simply uh, put them up here so that after the service you can take one. And there's not enough for obviously everyone, but for those who are eager to read and want to read some of these John Piper books, I just encourage you to not fight each other, but come up quickly before they're gone and grab one book per person and until they're gone, all right? And so there are up here a lot of rich, rich writings that I have spent hours and hours in, but they're yours now, so enjoy that as a gift and expression of thanksgiving back to you all. Let's pray before we open God's Word. Father, we quiet our hearts again because we want to do the, the most important thing now, which is we want to hear from you. Uh, we want the noise to die down, the anxiety, the distractions, 
everything that would crowd out our, the, the, and, and, and would be like thorns over our hearts that would keep us from engaging with you with affection. We pray that you would clear all that out. We want right now there to be a clear mind, to be an open and receptive heart, to be hunger in our spirit. We pray that the Spirit of God would come and would anoint this message, one more message as we close out this brief series on some of these most central and important issues of the Christian life. Lord, would you come, would you herald your gospel in a way that is profoundly encouraging to us and riveting to our hearts and souls. So I ask that you would give me grace as I seek to preach your word faithfully to your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we throw around the word gospel. We do that a lot. Talk about the gospel, the gospel this, gospel that, especially in our culture. Everything seems to be gospel-centered. Gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered marriages, gospel-centered cooking. We'll throw around gospel-centered to about anything. But what is the gospel, right? Because it's easy to to use that terminology, but do we know what's embedded in that very word? What is the gospel? It's a simple question, but it's profound in some ways. What is the gospel? When we ask the question, we're essentially asking two things. The first thing that we're asking when we say, what is the gospel? Is we're saying, what is the message that a person must believe in order to be saved? Okay, it's a message. What's the message that a person must believe in order to be saved? So Colossians 1, look at verse 21 and 22. That's the message right there that a person must believe to be saved. He is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless before him. That's, that's the message. That's the gospel, okay? But the second thing that we're saying when we say what is the gospel is we're saying what is the whole good news of Christianity, okay? In other words, let's get beyond the individual level to the whole cosmos. What's the whole good news of Christianity? So that's verse 20. Verse 20, Paul says, that through him, through Christ, he was reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Okay, so God is in the process of redeeming his creation, the whole world, the cosmos. So when we say, what is the gospel? We think both of the on the ground level of what is the gospel, the individual of you and me. And then we think of the 30,000 foot view of the gospel, which would incorporate the whole world. What is God doing to redeem and rescue the whole world, including this fallen planet that we are living on? Okay, so the first question, is the gospel more narrowly defined? The second question, is the gospel more broadly defined? All right. Now, the context here of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is a song. Paul is singing. He's actually singing a song or writing or composing a song. This is a song. Scholars believe that verses 15 through 23 is a written hymn. Okay, this is not just, uh, just the rest of the letter. This is, a separate, this is a separate section in the letter of Colossians where Paul has composed a hymn, either composed it himself or he has taken a hymn that was already in existence and embedded it within his letter. But this is a musical piece. This is a hymn. And Paul, in these verses, is singing about the scope and the size of Christ's supremacy. He's singing about the totality of his lordship. The words, all things, in verse 20, and everything, in verses 15 through 20, see, he keeps singing that same thing, all things, everything, reconciling to himself, are testifying to the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all things, over all, all that is in the world, everything that the world contains. And Paul, in these verses, is for the Colossians, what he's doing, his desire is that the Colossians, and indirectly for us, to be swept away afresh by the person and work of Jesus. In other words, he wants us to be so enraptured with who Jesus is and what he has done that we would recognize the futility of settling for anything smaller than Jesus in this life to find freedom and to find fullness, to find rescue and to find righteousness 
He wants us to be categorically swept away by what he sings to us in verses 15 through 23. So that we conclude that there is nothing on this earth that can satisfy me except for what Jesus has done and who he is. And we find all of our hope in that. And so this is now, you've got to remember, this is coming from Paul. Paul, who was a great academic Paul, who was intellectual. Paul, who was a deeply reasoned and logical man. And here Paul is, he is as if he's writing a, a profound letter with the, of theology. And in the middle of that, he stops. He puts his pen down for a minute and he begins to just worship. And he writes a song. I mean, one commentator said that Paul composed this hymn in a controlled state of ecstasy as he was thinking about the person and work of Jesus. And so what Paul wants us to do is to savor the infinite beauty and brilliance, the reliability and the trustworthiness of Jesus. He wants us to be captured by Christ, and he wants us to be captured by those realities for a very, very specific reason. And Matthew Henry, I think, gets at that reason when he says this in his commentary on this passage. He says, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those things which the tempter baits his hooks. Yeah, that's old English, but it's a poetic way of saying that the only thing big enough and strong enough to help us resist temptation to trust anything smaller than Jesus is to recover a sense of God's supremacy and size, to recover a sense of God's primacy and his preeminence. And when we have that, then everything else begins to fade away and we lose our taste for those things. And so Paul emerges from the deep theological waters of verses 15 through 20 saying to us, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Be captured by Christ. Be captivated by who Jesus is and what he has done because it is only then that you and I will be properly equipped to say no to things smaller than Jesus. And that's part of the quest of life is learning how to see Jesus as so big and so grand and so great that everything else becomes small. And tasteless in comparison. So Paul ends verse 20 with a declaration that Jesus is mighty to save. Now that's the preface to verses 21 through 23. So we slide into this small section of verses 21 through 23. And here Paul shifts gears to the specific and individual aspect of Christ's work. So he thinks about you and you and you. And he has you in mind as a, on a personal level. He reminds us of what happened to us personally. And he does that because, I think, because the most persuasive... Okay, now you test this theory to see if this is true. Okay, I think, I think he does it for this reason. Because the most persuasive defense for the Christian life is what? Is the power of a rescued life. I think that the most persuasive defense for the veracity of the Christian life is the power of a real rescued life. When you see the radical upside-down transformation that takes place in a sinner when they're converted, that testifies to the veracity and the truthfulness of the gospel's message. And in order to prove the sufficiency of Jesus, what Paul does is he shows us three things, very simply. One, verse 21, what we were, okay, that's our past. Verse 22, what we are now. And then verse 23, how should we go on? How must we continue? So first, what we were. Paul wants us to reflect on what we once were, and he uses very vivid language. He says, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Consider those three sort of phrases there. Number one, alienated. This is the natural condition of every human heart, of every man, apart from saving grace. Ephesians 2 says that we were born enemies of God. Paul says in Ephesians that we were born 
born, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins is that no one comes into this world morally neutral, right? No, nobody comes in this world sort of uh, just, just in a neutral position where they can either go this way or this way. No, we come into the world enemies of God. We come dead in our trespasses and sins. We come in desperate need of rescue. No one comes into this world with a good relationship with God. Everybody comes into this world with a bad relationship with God. We all come into the world with a hostile relationship with God. We are, by nature, God-haters. Now, now you, you, you may not have characterized your pre-converted state as a state of hostility and enmity or anger against God. You may say something like, you know, well, I was just sort of kind of indifferent to God. But please understand that indifference to God is hatred of God. To be indifferent to God is to hate God because it's the height of sin to be indifferent to infinite greatness and infinite majesty. To, to have a God who is as great and magnificent as our God is to be indifferent toward that God is to hate that God. You cannot be indifferent to such greatness and majesty. So we're alienated. Then he says we're hostile in mind. That is, we're enemies in thought, in our disposition, in our attitude, in our thinking, in our feeling. All of our parts of our physical faculties, they're operating at a level of hatred toward God. This is our condition before conversion. Hatred. Hate him in my mind. Hate him in my attitude. Hate him in my thinking. Hate him in my thought, all these thought patterns. And then he says, then he adds this third descriptor, doing evil deeds. In other words, this alienation, this hostility of mind did not just sort of end with my heart and end with my head. It actually went into my hands. That the things I thought turned into the things I did. And so this estrangement and this hostility expressed itself in our behavior. And I think it's really hard for us as Christians to kind of process this word evil and then attach it to ourselves. I think we have a really hard time doing that. When we think of the word evil, what we tend to think of is really, you know, really, really bad people, right? We tend to think of ISIS. We tend to think of people who kidnap little eight-year-old girls and turn them in for sex slavery. We tend to think about rapists and murderers. We tend to think about pedophiles and and prostitutes. And we don't typically associate that word evil with ourselves. And, and I would say that, when, that when, we, when we think about the word evil, if we don't attach it to ourselves, what that's doing is it's kind of showing the self-righteousness and the pride in us is that we may look down, we may say, well, you know, I may look down my nose at other people but is that really the same category, you know, as murderers and rapists? I mean, is that really the same as drug users and bank robbers and terrorists? Is that really the same category? And I think that what you come to realize when you study this passage and you look at that word evil is that you'll see is that the word evil here is really just a word that makes us all really, really, really uncomfortable because it's a word that simply means godless and self-centered. So to put it starkly, I could say to you sort of tongue in cheek, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. What Paul wants the Colossians to know is that we sin because we are sinners. Sin is what we do because sinners is what we are. And Paul is reminding us that before Christ, we were relationally estranged from God, externally hostile to him, internally self-seeking, and that manifested itself in our external evil deeds in the world. That's a really bad report card, really bad, F. F minus. I mean, it's as bad as it gets. And that's verse 21. So he starts there in verse 21. And then in verse 22, he moves to the good news. He shifts to the good news of the gospel. He says, that's who you were. Now, what are you now? Paul says, verse 22, he has now, praise God for the word now, he has now reconciled 
in his body of the flesh by his death. Okay, notice those prepositional phrases, in his body. That's how reconciliation happened in a physical body of a real man. In his body, he reconciled us. Okay, how did he do it? By his death. In other words, he had to die. The physical body had to die. Purpose statement, in order to do what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, that's not talking about a life of sinlessness. That's talking about positional holiness. It's not talking about practical holiness. It's talking about on the last day being able to stand before God and being justified and being righteous because of what Jesus has earned for you. The point of stating things this way is that we will never see, okay, the liberating power of the gospel until we first come to grips with how sick we are. So we, we need verse 21, okay, before 22 really has any pop to it. There's no, there's no celebrating verse 22 without a stark understanding of the, 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 the seriousness of verse 21. You will never feel God's deliverance until you first feel your desperation. And the thing that Paul wants us to know is that no one and nothing in this world can liberate you the way Jesus can. What you can never do for yourself, Jesus has done for you. And that means a relationship with God happens because he took the initiative with you. A relationship with God does not happen by us climbing the ladder of moralism and performance up to God in hopes that he'll see all the great accolades I'm doing for him and say, come on up. But it happens as the Son of God comes down to earth and humbles himself and becomes like one of us, yet not without, yet without sin, it's unstained by the world, and he rescues us. And he did all of this, what's his purpose statement here? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, okay, he, here's the grand sort of result of all this. The the great point here is that since you are in Christ, that means that all that is his has become yours. All the approval that Jesus experienced before God, we now experience before God. All the acceptance and the affection Christ enjoyed, we enjoy Access to God and affection from God can never be lost. Just as Christ has has full access to the Father, now we have full access to the Father. The, the, The curtain has been torn in two. We can enter into the Holy of Holies. We have access to the high priest. We have access to God. We can go right there to the throne because all that Jesus has is ours now. And we have total access to God, access to the presence of God. It's available for us all. This is who we are now. Sometimes it's helpful to use an illustration. It's thinking about, you know, if a stranger were to come to, to my house, let's say I was out, you know, just out in town and my wife is at home and this stranger shows up at the door, walks in and she's just standing there and she's never seen him before in her life, and he says, what's for dinner? And she's just staring at this guy, and there's this fear of who are you and what are you doing in my house? And she calls the police, and he's arrested, and he's out of there. Now imagine a different scenario. He had, that man has no credibility, but imagine a different scenario. This is how you and I uh, are, are treated when we go into the presence of God. Imagine that that same man comes to my house with me and I walk into the house with him and we walk in and he looks disheveled and disorganized and he looks just kind of unkempt and my wife looks at him and says, this is a strange man in my house, but he's with my husband and he says, what's for dinner? My wife begins to get out the nice plates because she knows that he is in my house on my credibility he is in my house because I invited him into my house and therefore he is, he is accepted by my wife on my credibility. Now, that is what's going on with Jesus, but a thousand times magnified. That you have access to God because you are coming in on the credibility of Jesus 
Which means, friends, please do not diminish the credibility of Jesus. When you say things like, well, I don't know if God will accept my prayers, and I don't know if God will hear me, and I just feel so dirty, and God isn't, doesn't even want me to worship him, and, and God will not listen to me, and you say all of these things, you're denying the infinite credibility that Jesus has purchased for you. So that when you come into the presence of God, you are warmly welcomed and received. Yes, sin and all, because that sin has been covered by Jesus and you come in on his credibility, on his line, and not yours. And that's the, that's the message of the gospel. It would be like a young man who is broke and has no money and his bank account is zero and he's eating ramen noodles every day. And he marries, he marries a, a gal who happens to come from a really rich and wealthy family and she has a job and she's very stable and she earns triple figures and she's doing well and they fall into a relationship and they have a great romance and it turns to marriage and he is broke on the day of his marriage and he says, I do. And after he says, I do, his bank account is filled. Why? Not because of anything he did. He now has her credit. They are one flesh. And this is who we are in Christ. And so this is who we are now. So we've seen what we were, who we are now. And then Paul says, okay, so how then must we continue? He tells us in verse 23 to continue in the faith. Look at this language, stable and steadfast. Okay, this is where I start to give us our char charge as a church Stable, friends, be stable, be steadfast. And he says it's not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And I want to pick up on that last phrase, not shifting, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Because we cannot take our definition of the gospel for granted because today something troubling is taking place. And it's what I would call the shifting and the silencing of the gospel. And what I mean by the shifting of the gospel is that it's changing. It's taking on new shapes. It's being redefined. It's being recast. It's being reconfigured to be a more accepting, a more palatable message to our postmodern ear. I mean, it is, just, it, it is. Right now, one of the greatest things that's under attack is the idea of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus was our substitute. What is being attacked right now is the idea that God crushed his son, and scholars, liberal scholars around the world are saying, I, we can't believe in a message anymore where God, where a father would crush his son. It's divine child abuse. And therefore, we're not going to believe that message. But friends, if we don't have a father who crushed his son, we don't have a gospel. Amen. Yeah, is it, a, is, is, it, is it a hard message? Yeah, it's a hard message, but it's the only message that saves but it's being shifted, it's being changed, it's being dinked around with, things are happening to it. And then there's the silencing of the gospel, which happens when pastors assume that everybody understands the gospel, right? I could just stand up here and say, well, you guys already know the gospel, and I never clarify it, I never define it, I never work on nuancing and clarifying what does it mean. Listen to the words, these words here from Mark Dever in his book, The Deliberate Church. He says, many new pastors of old churches assume a rudimentary understanding of the gospel and the Christian life among the flock. But assumption on our part too often leads to presumption on theirs. That is, when we assume the gospel instead of clarifying it, people who profess Christianity but do not understand or obey the gospel are cordially allowed to presume their own conversion without examining themselves for evidences of it, which may amount to nothing more than a blissful road to damnation. Very sobering words. And that's why we seek to clarify the gospel every week from this pulpit. We do it in the songs that we sing. We do it in our gospel community groups and our counseling. We do it in our new member classes. We do it in our baptism interviews because we live and we die by this message. And the biblical message is to be the heart of our church. But think about this for a minute. If, if this news is the difference between life and death, and it is, if it's the difference between heaven and hell, the worship of God and the worship of idols, do you not think that the devil, conspiring together with the world, conspiring together with our own flesh, will do everything in its power 
to stop this news from going forth. And if it can't stop it, then to change it. And if it can't change it, then scramble it. If it can't scramble it, then reinterpret it. If it can't reinterpret it, then dilute it. And if it can't dilute it, then distract us from it so that even if we believe it, we don't pay much attention to it and it's useless. In other words, if this news is the difference between salvation and damnation, don't you think that this very news will be the number one target of the enemy? That all the powers of hell and all of sinful flesh will aim their hatred at to seek to destroy. Therefore, the church is never safe from losing the gospel. We must always clarify the gospel because this is the central message by which we live, and it's the message that Satan hates the most. It's always in danger of being lost. We can never presume that we understand it clearly. The Reformation, 500 years removed. This is the message that men and women died for, to bring clarity to the gospel died, were burned on the stake for this message. So it's for this reason that as pastors, one of our primary callings is not, if not the primary calling, is to spend our entire life cherishing, protecting, proclaiming, and rehearsing this message to our people so that you, friends, likewise, will cherish and protect and proclaim and rehearse it until your dying day. That's safety for you. Tim Keller puts it this way in his helpful little article entitled Gospel Centrality or the Centrality of the Gospel. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in the stairway of truths. It's more like the hub or the wheel of truth. The gospel is not the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but it's the way that we make process in all the kingdom. And the main problem, I think, for us is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. The key to deeper spiritual renewal and revival in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces, is the continual rediscovery and appreciation of the gospel. We should be on a lifelong quest to always discover new implications and applications of the gospel for our life. That should be a daily quest. So let's take the remainder of our time this morning. And I want to talk about how this applies to our church. Because I don't want you to, to lose the central message of the gospel, okay? But there's also something that's a burden for me as a pastor, as a last message to you, is that not only do I not want you to lose that message, I want that message to affect how you relate to one another and, 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 and change and alter the way our culture is as a church. So Psalm chapter 90, verse 17 says, may the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And I like that description because we are to be a people marked by beauty, the beauty of the Lord on us. And that means that there is more to the gospel than correctness. There's not less, but there's more. If all we have in our profession of the gospel is correctness, without its beauty on display, our preaching will lack credibility. But when we have correct gospel doctrine with human beauty testifying to that teaching, that's when we step into the power of New Testament Christianity. What we want is not only right gospel doctrine, but we want robust gospel culture. So what is gospel culture? Okay, I'm, I just put this together to see if this would be helpful to you on the screen. Gospel culture, what do I mean by that? Is the corporate expression of the biblical gospel in and through the relationships of Christians to one another. It's when the message of the gospel gets so deep down inside of you that it affects your behavior and it changes the way we fundamentally relate to one another in the context of the local church. The gospel fundamentally alters our friendships, our vibe, our tone, our values, our priorities. A gospel culture in a local church produces honesty and freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, just to name a few attributes. It's a culture that is defined and sweetened by the gospel, by that message. Now, why does that matter? Okay, so 
why, why, why gospel culture? Why just stick with the message of the gospel? Why are you talking about gospel culture? Why does a culture matter? Why, why must we both preach gospel doctrine and imbibe gospel culture simultaneously? And I would say that we must do so because faithfulness to the gospel requires more than doctrinal purity in our churches. It requires relational beauty. So do you realize that it's possible to preach a sincere gospel while at the same time utterly denying its power by having an ugly anti-gospel culture? You can preach the gospel, but the culture of your church can be anti-gospel. Every church culture is communicating something to the world, and we are to communicate the gospel both by what we say and by what we do, and failure to do so can cause us to unsay in our lifestyle what we are saying in our confession. And I'm saying to us, don't be guilty of unsaying by your lifestyle what you're saying in your confession. So here's a great example, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. You can turn there if you want. It's a, an amazing passage, but Galatians 2, 11 through 14, Paul, this is what I call clash of the titans. Paul goes toe-to-toe with Peter, and he confronts Peter to his face. And Paul tells Peter, you are out of step with the truth of the gospel. He just confronts him toe-to-toe. And it's not that Peter was preaching a false gospel in Antioch, but what Paul, Peter was doing was he was subverting the gospel by his behavior. And Peter didn't even realize it. Paul was teaching that Peter's behavior was nullifying the culture of God's grace, which in effect was undercutting the very doctrine of the gospel. Peter's preaching one gospel. He's living an anti-gospel. Therefore, he's undercutting the message he's preaching. And that's Paul's point to Peter in Galatians 2. The doctrine of justification, hear me, by faith alone was at stake in Peter's lifestyle. His lifestyle was undercutting justification by faith alone because he was living a lifestyle that looked like justification was on the basis of works, food laws. So Paul confronts him. And what Paul says is that you, Peter, are not orthopodeoing. The Greek word orthopodeo is where we get the word uh, for a foot doctor, okay? And... And, and, and to, to ortho is the word straight. A foot doctor is podiatrist. So if you ortho podeo, that's a straight foot, okay? And the word he uses here is you are not straight footed. In other words, Paul pulls Peter over in his car and he tells him to take a breathalyzer and he can't walk a straight line. Falls over. He's gospel drunk. He's drunk. He's lost by his lifestyle, the message of the gospel. Paul says, you are drunk. You've lost it, man. Your lifestyle is undercutting justification by faith alone. So my point here is that there's more to the gospel than correctness. We need not only a right gospel doctrine, we need a robust gospel culture. Francis Schaeffer used to speak of orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. And so, do we consider our witness to the world to be so important that we're willing to emphasize our gospel behavior to the same level that we're willing to emphasize our gospel doctrine? How how many of us in here have even drawn an explicit connection between what we believe about the gospel and how we adorn the gospel in our behavior? Okay, Because it's possible, as I said, for us to affirm right truths about the gospel while denying its power by our conduct. And so in the last message, I'm urging us to make sure that we stay focused not only on right gospel teaching, but on right living in response to the gospel. And I'm asking the question this morning, how can we build a gospel culture in our church? And here's the responsibility that we all, all of us in here, especially those of you who are members, have a responsibility to make a contribution to the culture of this church. So like whatever attitude you bring in on a Sunday morning, you're contributing to the culture of our church. The, the conversations that you have, the relationships you build up, the ministries that you participate in, 
the sitting alone, sort of aloof on the side, that's contributing in a, in a very destructive way to the culture of the church. Throwing yourself in, engaging in ministry, serving other people, doing hard things, that's contributing to the culture of a church. It's building it up. And so I want to give you some practical suggestions for how we develop more of this culture, gospel culture at our church. And much of my thinking here is framed, is shaped by Ray Ortland, who is pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, who's just, a, just an amazing uh, practitioner of the gospel. Love how he has just inculcated his church with such rich gospel, not only liturgy, but just practice. Okay, and so I have five of them here. Um, that I want to give to you in light of this, all right? Five practical suggestions for how to shape our church's culture with a gospel, okay? You ready? Here we go. Number one, um, church, incorporate into your language, into your speech, an expressed need for God as well as trust in him to meet those needs, okay? So there's two things here and their intention. It's expressing your need, okay? That's an admission of weakness, and you're simultaneously expressing the sufficiency of God. You're broke, God's rich. You're needy, God's great. You're desperate, God's a deliverer. That's what you're doing, okay? So get that into your language conversationally with each other. We don't want to expose our inadequacies as human beings. That's our problem, but that's precisely what we must do if we want to adorn the beauty and the relevance of the gospel. Because what good is a gospel if I don't have need? So if the culture is one that sort of is one of self-sufficiency, then wh- the gospel is just not going to be adorned around here. Because we're all pretty well self-sufficient, right? I mean, if we never talk about our needs, we're preaching a man-centered gospel. We're preaching a sermon about self-sufficiency. God's strength is seen in light of our weakness. What we need is vulnerability, brokenness, and trust in God at the same time. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what we see in that one verse is both need and expectancy. Poor in spirit, that's my need. Expectancy, kingdom of heaven is mine if I'm poor in spirit. Okay, so God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. A broken and needy church is a church that God can use. A prideful, self-sufficient church is a church that, humanly speaking, might look successful. It's not a church that God's using. Luke one fifty three says, he has filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away empty hands, with empty hands. What I want is for our church to fail often enough, obvious enough, and painfully enough to stay hungry and humble before God. That's what I want. God loves to dwell among the lowly. He is so wonderfully attracted to need and emptiness and I would say right now, God is putting us in a place of need and, and emptiness, right? I mean, I'm stepping off the scene, about to, to head down to Houston, Texas. We had a new lead pastor in the bag, in the bag, signed, sealed, and delivered, and ready to go. Didn't work out. Didn't work out. What is God doing? Well, I, he's doing a lot of things. But one of the things he's doing is he's driving us to a place of neediness before him. So what are we going to do in response? Here, quick, hurry, let's hire another young guy really fast. No. We're going to pray. We're going to fast. We're going to stay the course. We're going to pray. We're going to fast. We're going to stay the course. We're going to seek God. That's what we're going to do. not going to worry. We're not going to fear. We're going to take that need to the rescuer of the needy. That's what we're gonna do. So that's number one. Gospel culture in our church, do this. Okay, get into your language and your conversation with each other and express need for God as well as an expectation that God will meet your needs. Get that into your conversations. That, that needs to become habitual in your speech. Number two, to, to, to develop a gospel culture, we need to be generous in our orthodoxy. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean this, continue to establish meaningful friendships with other gospel-believing churches and Christians in the city. Let's never ever be the church that is all by itself on an island that sort of thinks of itself as the, the bastion of what everything God wants. 
for a Christian in a church to be. Pride, just sitting right there. We've really got it all together and everybody else needs to learn from us. Never be that. We may not have the same confessional standard as other churches, okay, we don't, but we have the same mission from Jesus. We don't have the same confession, but we have the same mission, okay? And we need to work with other churches where we can. The the historical flow of Reformation theology includes a range of Reformed convictions, right? And we can work with people outside of that camp as well. But it's easier, this is a good place to start because it's easier, okay? to, there's a range of Reformed convictions, Reformed Baptists, traditional Presbyterians, faithful Anglicans, Calvinistic Charismatics, and other theologically responsible positions in alignment with confessions of faith in the United States right now that are solid, like the Gospel Coalition Confession of Faith, which is a biblically robust document. It is. It's not a minimalistic confession. It's not the lowest common denominator of doctrine out there. It's a beefy confession that rallies around the gospel and it exalts Jesus as the center of our message and the focus of our churches. And what I'm saying is we can have a more stringent confession. That's fine. But let's make sure we're associating with people who are seeking to herald Jesus and lift him up. Let's make sure we're friends with them. Let's make sure we are on the same mission with them in our advancement of the gospel. So practically that means that you need to learn how to submerge second and third level doctrines, okay, submerge them under the preeminence of the gospel. Gospel's the big umbrella. Everything comes underneath that. Don't become a church that looks with a squinted eye at every other church in town that does not hold to all the distinctives that we hold to. Don't do that. Jesus doesn't like that. That does not make Jesus proud. Okay, just a personal note. Now, I'm not speaking for our church. I'm not speaking for my fellow pastors. I'm speaking for me. But I think I'm pretty sure Mark would come up and amen me. (laughs) And PT and PK. Uh, here's, Here's what I'm saying for myself. Okay, personally speaking, I am unwilling to create a platform in any church that I pastor. Should I pastor another church? where our members spend time debating secondary and tertiary issues with other Christians. I am unwilling to pastor that church because I only have one life to live and I'm just not gonna give it to that, not gonna do it. But I am willing to labor and suffer and pray to provide a platform where Jesus is exalted according to the gospel and everyone rallies around him and rejoices in him. I'll give my life to that but I'm not gonna give my life to debating second and third level issues with other Christians. Not doing that. That, can, that might be your program, but you do that. I'm not doing that. Not gonna do it. All right, so that's number two. Number three, strive. Strive for a cultural feel on Sunday mornings where the beauty, gentleness, and peace of the gospel is communicated to the weak and needy people, okay? And I would say here that this has worked out in how we lead, read, sing, preach, pray, absorb the, observe the Lord's Supper and baptisms. It'll be worked out in our con- conversations after church in who we speak to and who we invite over for lunch. Make sure that Heritage Baptist Church continues to be permeated with an aroma, a smell of love, compassion, care, and concern, friendliness, and faithfulness. Make sure that's the aroma. In the richness of our teaching, in the robustness of our doctrinal standards, we must always remain a church that's accessible to weak people, right? We must not be so demanding that, that, that we say only the strong can participate here. This is not an elitist club where the most mature have membership. This is a place where normal Christians receive life-giving nourishment from God so that they can finish the race set before them. We're just trying to make it to heaven, folks. Okay? Sitting about an elite, an elite standard. Though I want us to be robust and beefy, okay? The historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philly uses a call to worship Okay, each week that says this, love it. It says, here here it is, call to worship every Sunday they say the same thing. Here it is, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, 
to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Welcome. And that's on our website of our church because we believe that. I love it. That's the kind of gospel culture that we intend to create here. It's the church that we must always strive to be. During our weekly gathering of the church, we will experience a variety of human emotion, from good-natured humor to weighty solemnity and much in between. And all of it is sincere and unforced. But through it all, there must always be a gospel culture so that the the gospel maintains and gets credibility and impact in our world. That's how the gospel has impact in the, when it's seen in the lives of each other, okay? All right, number four. There's only two left and we're done. Number four, be authentic and honest with one another before the Lord. I mean, this is just huge. When we admit sin and weakness and need to each other, we're increasing admiration for the Lord who rescues us from such sin, weakness, and need. And we do this so that every sinner present can be sure that I too can stumble toward him. I too can fall toward Jesus. The most important trait in the gospel gospel culture is honesty. John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is an honest relationship with Jesus and with one another so that we are free to grow. And this honesty is a mark of biblical orthodoxy. So many churches characterized by shaming and blaming and pointing the finger and fault finding, which is the opposite of a redemptive culture. We are to be like God who takes sin so seriously that we deal with it in deep and biblical ways in a context of redemptive love. Well, that means we fight for each other, not with each other. We fight for each other. We wage war on sin with one another in the context of sweetness and service, love and humility. And when you come to grips with your own profound need before God, you will be tender and compassionate to your fellow members in whatever their struggle is. Vulnerability and authenticity are the marks of a gospel culture. And there's only one way to grow in that, and it's to have an ever-increasing sense that you are the chief of sinners and that God has displayed his perfect patience toward you. And if he's displayed his perfect patience towards you, you'll certainly be patient with other people. And here's how you do that on a weekly basis. Let me challenge you with this way. In your gospel community group this week, assuming you have one, get one if you don't, okay? Take a brother or sister side in that group and say this. Say this very simple thing. Okay, Mike, here's what's not working in my life. Okay, uh, pull you away for 10 minutes. Here's, Tom, here's what's not working in my life. My marriage is bad right now, bad. It's bad, okay? Tom says, Jonathan, I wanna pray for you right now. I'm gonna pray for you puts his hand on me. He prays over me in Jesus' name. And he's gonna remember that conversation, okay? All right, then we switch. Tom says, Jonathan, here, here's what's not working in my life right now, okay? Tom, I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for you right now. I'm gonna pray for you. I listen, I pray for him. It takes 10 minutes. It's confidential, it's sacred, it's meaningful, and it changes lives. But never talking about it isn't gonna change your life. You're just gonna go deeper and deeper into your sin because you're not telling anybody your weakness, Okay, gospel people embrace mess because gospel people have a Jesus that loves to clean up messes. Okay, gospel people worship Jesus who's an expert at cleaning up messes. So be authentic and honest with one another. And number five, last one. We want a gospel culture, here we go. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, please, please, please do this. A gospel culture is a united culture. We cannot be divisive with our speech and behavior and gospel-centered at the same time. Don't talk about the gospel if you're dividing your brothers and sisters with your speech, okay? So I would urge us to establish Romans 12.10 as our dominant pattern for relating to each other. What does Paul say in Romans 12.10? Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor This is what should characterize our life together, not merciless comparisons. 
not guarded aloofness at the back of the room, okay? not eyeing one another with negative scrutiny. Instead, we are to move toward one another with acceptance and honor because love covers a multitude of sins. David wrote this. He said, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. There's excellence, hear me, listen, to be found in every member in this room. Excellence. Excellence. And it's very hard. It's not very hard to find. It's right in front of you. Just, just have an honest look at your neighbor and you'll see good things and then build up your fellow member. Let's create a culture around here where critical, disparaging, undermining, negative talk is shut down and replaced with positive, uplifting, edifying speech. I said it about gossip before, and I'll say it again. I want it to be weird and awkward that if you speak critically, that, you're, you, that your speech, if it's critical, that someone will stop you mid-sentence and say, nope, not here, not in this church. We're not doing that. It's not the game we're on. We're not playing that. We're not cutting people down in this church. My mom's dad uh, Mr. Nelm, some of you knew him, was a great man, okay? And one thing I loved about him was he never tore people down with a speech, never. I remember saying something in my dad's kitchen about a guy critical one time, and as soon as I said something negative about the guy, he flipped it on me and told me something great about him. And it just spoke volumes to me. So let's do that. When, when you hear critical speech about somebody, flip it and tell that same person something great about that person. Okay, The gospel calls us to make generous pronouncements about one another. Most churches tend to live on a starvation diet of personal affirmation. They don't affirm one another. So let's risk the more generous tone of highlighting the strengths and graces of one another. Romans 12.10 is not flattery. Okay, We're not talking about flattery. Flattery is lying. Don't flatter. Flattery is lying. Flattery is saying something to someone that's just not true. But honoring one another is the practical outworking of the gospel and how it chooses to observe how specifically Christ is being formed in your fellow members. So what you say is something like this. Here are some of the evidences of grace that I see in your life. I'm so encouraged by them, and I'm thankful that you're a part of our church. Say that. That's gospel speech. That's discourse that creates joyful gospel culture. So in your groups, try this. Outdo one another in showing honor, okay? Let's have some friendly competition, all right? This is just competitive, but everybody wins, okay? Ask your group something like this, okay? Who's gonna go first? We're gonna honor each other. Who's gonna go first? Hands will go up and immediately we'll start honoring one another with sincerity, not flattery. A culture of judgment and criticism will be replaced by a culture of life. And if you do this every week, you will do this until a gospel culture is formed. So friends, gather together and gospel together. And don't forget that. David Pallison writes, when you look closely, God's love is very different from unconditional positive regard. The seedbed of contemporary notions of unconditional love. God does not accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. He loves me just as Jesus is. He loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. This love is much, much, much better than unconditional. Perhaps we could call it contra-conditional love, Contrary to the conditions for knowing God's blessing, he has blessed me because his son fulfilled the conditions. Contrary to my due, he loves me. And now I can begin to change and not earn, not to earn love, but because of love, we need something better than unconditional love. We need the crown of thorns. We need the touch of life to the dead son of the widow of Nain. We need the promise to the repentant thief. We need to know I will never leave you or forsake you. We need forgiveness. We need a vine dresser, a shepherd, a father, a savior. We need to become like the one who loves us. We need the better love of Jesus. And that's what our church needs. And friends, Jesus came to open a way for us to experience the biblical love of God by fulfilling two conditions. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the moral will of God, a perfect substitutionary death on our behalf, And my prayer for you as we part ways, okay, is that God would cause you to love others with the same gospel love with which he has loved you. So my last message to you is this, keep believing and get that gospel culture deep down into your bones until you become a community of faith that's 
deeply attractive to our city, not cool. Gospel culture, that's how we'll shape the world. Let's pray. Father, we we love you. We are grateful for your word. Thankful that it is correcting and changing. We recognize, Lord, that all of this is possible because of your redemptive work in us. And so our prayer is that you would change us, shape us, form us into the people that you have called us to be. We want to be a sweet-smelling aroma, not only to you, but a sweet aroma to the world around us so that unbelievers will look in on this and see a glorious mess, glorious mess, that is just deeply riveting to them and attractive. So make us into those people. Lord, I pray your rich and profound blessing upon Heritage Baptist Church into the next season of our life together. Lord, do great things for your name and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.